Thank you. Thanks everyone for coming. Uh, we'll get started. Um, my name is Monique Woodward. I'm a chapter counsellor of the Australian Institute of Architects. Um, in an act of reconciliation, we'd like to acknowledge the Burung people as traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors and their elders past, present and emerging. The Australian Institute of Architects is a peak body, is the peak body for architects with over 12,000 uh, members nationally. This is part of a three-part series hosted by the Institute at this glorious M Pavilion. Tonight's event will feature some of the best and brightest of emerging architects, uh, emerging architects, graduates and network. Uh, the topic is digital. The digital is more influential than the real. Tonight's speakers are Andre Benice from Warboa, Claire Scorpo from Claire Scorpo Architects. They'll be discussing designing within the digital and the physical as a subtopic. Uh, Mel Bright from Make Architecture. Uh, Adam Pascola from Lions. They'll be discussing, they'll be focusing on the digital versus making in construction. Uh, and Amy Muir from Muir Architecture. And Ben Milbourne from Built, discussing media and marketing. So, there are a few hashtags on MPAV Architects uh, for some of the... Oh, no, there's not. There's not anymore. There's no... Don't look at your phones. Do not look at your phones. Um, so we'll start off with Claire discussing uh, model making. No digital media in this debate. So come to the floor, Claire and Andre. Um, so, Andre and I, we're going to be talking through the digital, uh, through the um, design of architecture. So, the very early stages, and it's going to go sequentially from that. And the way we thought we'd go about it is starting off with like the very first thing we do when we kind of start on a project, which is the kind of um, collecting data and um, recording existing conditions. It's a very early. Oh, not on. Quite loud. Um, generally, don't need it. Um, so. I suppose we were thinking about how do we start a project and what are the two different kind of variations of doing that. So I'm on the physical team um, with like the real life things and Andre obviously the other. So I suppose I was going to start by just talking about the way we get our information. Um, when we're doing it not in the digital world, what we look at is basically the idea of abstracting. So our kind of method is, is through reduction. So we get an existing site, we go out there and physically go out measure um, do photographs and the person involved is actually kind of um, engaged in the process of documenting very specific things that they see as opposed to kind of a holistic data set. Um, from that, and I've got the prop. From there, I suppose, we then again, we go through that process of reduction and reduce the content of what we collect down to a very kind of base minimum. Oh, thank you, Mel. Um, very physical. <laughs> Uh, and we, you know, create really, really basic cardboard models, which are kind of a thing of, you know, particular era, a bit dusty. Um, which all this does is could capture particular elements of the site that we want to focus on. Um, it also reduces the project down to a set scale, so we're not looking at something that's infinite and able to be zoomed in and out of. We set a particular scale for these models, and for the first kind of layer of tasks, we look at the scale and we analyse it at the scale and consider how something new can inform 
the process yeah. here. So, and I think, well, maybe as a counter, being from the digital side, I think in an ideal world, we'd be making one-to-one -one prototypes. So before this M Pavilion gets built, it gets built at one-to-one -one scale, and you can walk around, test the size, the feel, the relationship, the materials, the finishes. Because um, you can never truly know whether something's quite right or feel completely confident in it until you've kind of been there and seen it. So if building one-to-one -one prototypes isn't really feasible, then I would argue that the next best thing is to capture as much detail in a virtual digital environment. And so rather than reducing the context or the scale of the object, we can capture uh, the site, um, the relationships between the plants, the trees around with technology such as photogrammetry and 3D point clouds. So this then gives us a highly detailed virtual model that we can then start to test some of those ideas rather than reducing the inputs. We want to be able to um, include as much as possible into that scenario. So again, like that's an interesting observation because the way we work when you do have a point cloud and you've got everything detailed, you've got like the floor kind of joint lines, you know, there's a whole mass of information that you're working with. And, you know, we all teach actually that, that are here today. And, you know, even with students, we always say, how do you start on a project and, and what do you kind of focus in on and engage with? Because the world is a very busy place. We need to kind of work out what it is that's essential to the project. And again, in stripping back and reducing, we find that's the way that we, you know, before the project starts, we kind of really limit our parameters um, and, you know, focusing on the small. So. Yeah, because I, I mean, I guess I'm, I guess I always feel a little insecure about um, making design, design decisions. I feel, you know, I'm a little hesitant to fully commit to something unless I have all the factors in play. And that includes the, the, the rubbish bin, the power lines, all the things that start to, all those urban artefacts that start to interact with the building. And until you can truly kind of see it in that context, I don't feel you can truly um, get a full grasp of, of that environment. So I think maybe one example, I don't have a prop because I'm the digital side, so it's all in the cloud, but uh, there was a, a dream job, which was a treehouse um, for a client in Flinders, um, or every architect's dream job, I imagine. Um, and for that, they were very particular about it being up in the trees and, and floating so I couldn't have any structure coming down. It had to be fully suspended from the trees. And so the trees had, you know, quite a complex geometry, as we kind of all understand branches to be. So the only way that we could confidently create that design was by getting a highly detailed 3D point cloud of the entire tree or trees and then having that virtual environment to then create um, a, a solution that's stitched into that quite complex scene. Hmm. <laughs> I can see how that could be some of the damage. <laughs> okay, should we do... Well, we, we, go on the option. Pardon? Well, the fast slow. Oh, yeah. So the next stage that we're going to go into... So we're doing three stages. The next stage was looking at production and looking at um, the way we go about producing design. Um, so we've gathered all our information. Andre's got an enormous amount of data and clouds. I've got not very much at all. Um, and then it's kind of looking at how we then take the project from there. Um, and this is where we kind of 
in talking about it, found another kind of very binary way to kind of perceive it, and that's in terms of speed of production. So in the way that we work, we're really interested in kind of slowing down the process of what we do um, and trying to, instead of kind of working with the pace that we're kind of used to as an environment now and in the speed of like the world as it is now, we really want to slow down that, that kind of process and kind of take more time to kind of make decisions. Um, so again, this is where in the process that we use, we kind of engage with physical model making as a way to kind of push the design. Um, and we like this for a number of reasons. I suppose to start off with, we've got a limited kind of set of, of ideas that we're kind of keen to pursue from the beginning, so the early stage of design. Um, and we like the kind of reductive process of kind of, um, yeah, developing the scheme that only responds to those at that point. We're not interested in materials, we're not interested in, you know, a whole lot of other dynamics that will come in later on. Um, the model making process itself, it's slow. Um, we don't do it digitally first and then build them. We, we kind of build through that process. So we have to kind of look at the site, we have to start thinking about what we're going to shape up, consider it, analyse it, build it. Once it's done, which does take time, then we have to sit back and kind of consider, well, is, has this kind of achieved what we wanted? What do we need to do to change it? And that process, I suppose, that slow process of building and making and physically kind of manufacturing something that we can look around at all sides and it can be sitting there on the table as a reference point, that, um, that slowness allows us to have the analysis as part of what we do um, and it comes into the process as opposed to being something that we kind of gravitate to later on. Yeah, and I think as the counter, if we go back to the treehouse, um, <laughs> for that one, it was having no confidence in doing uh, five or six options to be confident that one of those was right. It had to be 100 and to do 100 and to do them in the time that you have. The only real way to sort of test those 100 is to do them digitally because you can move through them quickly and you can iterate. And, I mean, the way that we work at WoWoWo is we only know a solution's right when we've tested every other possibility that we can. And that the only real way to kind of do that is, is through digital means and digital models. Hmm. Cool. On that note, I might, <laughs> I might hand over to Mel and Adam for round two. I think I'm going to start. I'm going to go for this, this one. Sorry, Adam. Okay. I can lift it up for you. Um, so it's, sort of, it's quite good to go after these guys because I'm supposed to be on the physical side and Adam's on the digital and... Um, my practice is called Make and I think um, because of that and because of the work we do, everyone thinks we're a bit crafty and we do stuff with our hands and um, don't really use a computer much. And so I suppose um, the conversation about producing and these kind of ideas of producing, but one of the things I would say is while we use all of the digital tools, my position is that at the end of the day, the physical thing is the hard reality and the end constraint. And we haven't got much choice about that. So when the question is asked, what's more influential? I think at the end of the day, all of these tricky digital things in trees have to fit in the tree or on a site. And so I've just got some extra props. So I wonder if the conversation is actually a stylistic um, aesthetic conversation, which is not that bad. This is not the new direction of make. Um, there's nothing wrong with this, I suppose, if you're into it. 
Um, but what I worry about sometimes is that the kind of digi digital idea is that it's this futuristic, innovative, really wow, never been done before thing. Like these amazing futuristic projects. <laughs> Not from anyone in Australia. Um, or this hairy one. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a stylistic, aesthetic kind of choice. And I'm really glad that those things and differences exist in the world. But I just come from Make, where we make mostly simple buildings for um, clients um, that are mostly alts and ads on small budgets. Like these. Little projects. Now, um, unlike Claire, I am not a good quick model maker and I quite like Andre's approach of testing many, many hundreds of things. So we use all the digital tools to test things and I have to admit that we don't make a model until we've submitted it to town planning, so it's too late to use the model as a testing tool, mostly because I'm impatient and I like to test lots of stuff. So. We do make models, so we look a bit crafty and physical. <laughs> but mostly we do this, because it's quick. Oh, there's the models, lots of models. Aren't we crafty? Um, but actually, Make is really interested in just some simple things that um, are about context-responsive architecture that might just basically pick up on the sort of things that Claire's talking about that are kind of found on the site. Sorry, I was hoping to get this flipping the other way. Our clients are the mums and dads of Melbourne with very little budgets, so they can't afford those futuristic designs. Most of the families came to us really just wanting a new kitchen or a new bedroom. They didn't ask for architecture. The builders build things with their hands on tricky sites with tough material constraints. Bricks that are heavy that have to go together with mortar. The site, no matter how many times you might model it in your computer, um, is never exactly what you expect. So I suppose we're saying we use the digital, but at the end of the day, the physical the reality is the hard constraint. It's also actually the goal. It's, for me, the goal is to end up with something built. So we test all these things physically to deal with the material constraints, but we're actually dealing with the site as well. It doesn't mean, I don't know where I'm at with time, but we care about the built reality, not through some idea of wacky digital testing, but we like the idea of good materials built well and how they might be different with light or different seasons. I don't know what I'm finding next. We have to deal with the hard reality of prototyping on site and seeing if the thing will actually go together. We have to get it out of the computer, so I find the computer useful often. And we test it many times digitally. Sorry, Adam. I don't, if I don't show Adam my slides, he can't counter anything. Um, and so um, you can't see this one, but again, a brick detail drawn with such care. We modelled every brick. 
and then the hard reality of the physical real site and the corner junction of the brick. And lastly, if we think about this digital dreaming, this lovely land where anything is possible and you can draw it however you want, um, we might use the digital tools to get an output that is incredibly bloody complicated with many, many drawings that we couldn't probably do by hand, maybe we could, but at the end of the day we end up with this harsh reality of dealing with a craftsman and working out how the hell to get this thing through that and then make it stand up on site. Oh, that's it. <laughs> um, just to sum up, um, I think that in the end we're using all of these digital tools but is it really just that we like the look of these crafty things and maybe the conversation is a different conversation <laughs> and that's okay. Thanks Adam. Thanks Mel. Alright, so you might cast your mind back to a year ago when this was a hut, you know, a handcrafted hut and uh, the great Glen Merkett was down here been romanced by Sean Godsell. Are you here today, Sean? Of course you're not. And Glenn was, uh, and Glenn was romancing or fetishising the pencil. Like, the pe architecture begins with the pencil. Like, we all draw, right? We all use digital means. We're all past that, yeah? Digital has won. There's this insinuation in Mel's presentation there that... Um, we're not interested in building. It lines as a practice, we are completely committed to building ideas. And that's a twofold thing, building ideas. And I want to maybe put three propositions to you today that those who are maybe more on the digital side, we think a bit differently, we speak a bit differently, and we also craft a bit differently. And I've got a few props there to uh, demonstrate that. So in terms of, I guess, why our practice would get lumped, with this, or tarred with this digital paintbrush or magic wand. Um, obviously, we do projects which have formal operations which don't seem like they're classical. There are extrusions, lofts, pixelations. Uh, we do things which aren't impossible to do by hand, but we completely rely upon Rhino and Revit and other techniques to generate these uh, projects. But more importantly for us, what the digital gives us is a way to extend our thinking. So for those of you who know the Swanson Academic Building, that multicoloured durian thing at the top of Swanson Street, not the Sean Godsell Building, um, that was generated through a lot of digital processes. So the facade kind of goes in and out like a fabric. And the reason why it goes in and out, we're interested in the idea of how the city can physically inflect upon a building. So we generated a, a script in the office to map uh, important civic elements around the city and we gave them an amplitude and they pushed onto the facade. When you go and see that building now, you might have the story in your mind and how it, it, it came about. For us, it generates an effect about a building being responsive to its context, but its context is not always uh, the context of a construction site. It, a building site is the city, and the city is made up of ideas, and we think that the, the digital gives us the means 
to explore um, concepts in other ways which materials just by themselves won't. So again, if you look at SOB, if you hold the words pixelate, loft, extrude in your mind, you can find a way to conceive of the building. We also think of our users as people who are able to traverse the building like any level of the building, like, like a game. So we all play games these days. Everyone grows up playing computer games. And we think that people can actually move through a building, explore it and unlock its puzzles as if you were in a digital realm and piece together the unbuilding and kind of solve it. So firstly, we think that digital allows us to design buildings differently and for you to experience them differently too. Secondly, we like to think that we speak digital too, that it is a second language which we all have learned now. And by digital, we don't mean necessarily scripting. We mean digital that all of us that have lived this second life on our phones, online, but also around us, the materials which we work with are also screens and they're digitally based. So currently we're doing a project in Perth called Yagen Square, which is going to be like their Federation Square. And a key part of that is materials, local stone from Western Australia, uh, native plants. But the other third key material is an enormous digital tower. So think of the screen of Federation Square, but, you know, ten times the size, visible in the round, and that is for us a form of digital architecture. But this is a medium which we work with to broadcast events, uh, allow space for digital artworks, and that's another way for everyone to experience the world digitally and for us to conceive it in, in, in that way too. We also think of the digital, uh, obviously, as a, a network. Yeah? So when we designed the Swanson Academic Building and RMIT's New Academic Street, we thought about students, users, as people who live within a network. So as soon as they log on to an RMIT network, they are now part of an organisation. They don't need to be within the doors of RMIT, although we gave them a lot of places where they could land, but we're cognizant of this idea um, that people exist both in the virtual and in the physical. So we think that the digital gives us means, alongside speaking materials, speaking place, speaking culture, a way to actually bridge across cultures. Because many, many people understand digital before they maybe understand other languages. And finally, uh, as, as a larger practice, obviously we have a, a responsibility to um, you know, document large projects. There's, there's a brute force to, to documentation, to using things like BIM, uh, you know, to coordinate ten different sub-consultants and to you know, generate hundreds of, of drawings and room schedules and all that garbage. But that's all just drafting, right? Um, but because we're plugged into that, we also try to see how we can turn these tools into design tools and, and making tools as we're doing our documentation. And I thought I'd... I thought I'd just bring a couple of examples or samples of things that we generate digitally in the, in the practice too, and maybe why this is relevant and how this relates to making um, concepts. So this is a, a sample of a glass reinforced concrete for the NAS building. It's located on the side of one of the library buildings. Uh, and what this is based upon is an idea which you couldn't do by, by hand. And what this is is a blow-up of the vesiculation in bluestone. Yeah, so you have bluestone all over the city and we've used, you know, you use bluestone around the city to make public buildings. Uh, we wanted to take the reference and the idea of bluestone but do something 21st century with it. So, that, so again, it has a foot in, in on both our camps. So this is on the side of RMIT. 
and this is another sample here from the Swanson Academic Building. And this is a cast aluminium panel that is a nolly map of the CBD. So again, we all know nolly map, very traditional, was, was hand-drawn. But these days, people are more used to looking at the world through Google Earth, yeah, through satellite view. So we've used the idea that we conceive and experience the world digitally. So we've taken that aerial view, that, that um, satellite view, to make a panel for the foyers and which locates our building in that. So we think that uh, everyone who is here is a digital architect. You move between these worlds simultaneously uh, and we've all learnt a new language that we can speak. Thank you. Hi. Um, we're talking about uh, media and uh, the image and architecture. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in social media um, in architectural practice, but I think that social media presents real risks and problems for architecture. Thank you very much. Um, let me run with that. That might be a contentious statement. But I think um, Instagram for architecture is like Twitter for politics. And we know how that's turned out for the US. And what I mean by that is the speed and the, the form of the medium reduces the conversation or limits the conversation around architecture to the equivalent of 140 characters. I don't want to sound like a Luddite. I think that social media has a really important role in architecture, but I think we, we need to be really conscious of both its um, enormous opportunities but also its risks. If we go back to the kind of conversation around Twitter, I think Twitter's kind of complicit and contributes to the um, reduction of political discourse, to, to that of sloganeering, things like Make America Great Again, where we consume sound bites in ever-increasing quantities through a 24-hour news cycle, and we seem incapable of sustaining a meaningful debate around public policy. In this context, I think that the architectural image in social media becomes like the soundbite. Through social media's ubiquity and its speed, we're consuming more and more architectural images, but we're limiting our engagement with architecture to the most easily consumed aspect of architecture, that is, its image and what it looks like. I think the risk for architecture is then that architecture gets reduced to stylistic concerns and architects as stylists. My question then is, is there another role for the image in architecture? And may, uh, from a point of view that I think absolutely, um, I'm a terrible Instagrammer and I've actually brought some props today which are three-dimensional um, Instagram. <laughs> um, blown, up, blown up versions. But it, my close friends know that I am terrible at Instagram. Um, those who have ever worked in an office with me, it takes me about an hour to prep an image and, um, and then to debate whether or not it's the right one and does it work with the grid and is it the right angle, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, everyone gets very sick of it. Um, but I think there's, um, there's an incredible importance in terms of what we understand about this idea of curation and I, th I thought I'd go through that today. This is an image... So this is, this is a photograph I took, it's up the right way, um, and uh, this is a building that Mel Wright, Claire Cousins and I, um, in Venice last year went to Switzerland to chase. Um, a very similar image like this was found on the internet and this is the image that we were literally chasing. This is what we had to go through to find it. And I think this is something that I will never post on Instagram. Um, and I think there was an enormous amount of disappointment. We were, we were worried. We didn't, we didn't quite know whether or not we'd found the right building. In fact, it 
it took us a while to find it, didn't it? Yeah, we found it. Anyway, going back to this one, this is what it looks like. It's very pretty. It's beautiful if you get it on the right angle. But you can sort of see here that it doesn't look very pretty. And then because I'm really anal and I can't cope, um, even though I know that that's really pretty and lovely and I actually much prefer that, I had to do this. So this, this thing of um, actually reducing the image down to something that potentially it actually isn't anymore. <laughs> um, and also I think the commentary as well, Mel and I um, were posting similar Im images on the day. Um, Mel was far more upfront about the fact that we'd had to go through a whole lot of terrible architecture before we actually got to the image. Um, whereas I think I was a little bit more polite because I was a bit worried about whether or not Mario Botta would actually look at our Instagram. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I think, I think um, when we talk about Instagram, there's, there's actually something quite important about how we think about how we post something. These are actually some images as well that I would never post about projects, so this is, but this is an incredibly important part of what we do um, within the practice in terms of generating ideas. So these are site photographs of a project. And the things that we look at here, for instance, in this particular project, this is the, the site here, is the ornament on the front facade. And then the second most um, important thing that's happening from an ornamental point of view is a chimney. And then we go down the street and the chimney now becomes a very utilitarian condition. However, this is what we then do. We then curate the image and crop it so that it no longer looks actually what it is. And the purpose of doing this is actually to focus in on the actual elements that we um, believe have value or will actually add to the project. And they're the things that we focus on that drive the concept. And then we design it and it turns into this. And this is a thing that I'll put up on Instagram. Um, and it's a very abstract condition, but it becomes a condition that starts to talk about the idea and the concept. And the idea that we now start to invert the, um, invert the chimney. The chimney becomes, um, it's still a utilitarian object, but it effectively becomes a volume maker um, and an item that then can basically bring light down into uh, these tight sites and tight house. Um, but it, ultimately, at the end of the day, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with concrete and how it comes together and the nightmares that you've got on site. So I think there's, um, when we talk about Instagram, how we actually start to think about um, the importance of the image, to a degree I agree with Ben. We, we are, <laughs> we are um, on a very fine line. But there's also this importance about how we actually um, represent ideas and I think that that's something um, to consider. I think the, the idea of the image as a catalyst is really interesting, and I think it um, has enormous potential. So we, in my practice, I only have one prop, um, but it's a good one. So we quite often get people coming to us and saying, we want one of these. Um, this is a project that we did quite a few years ago, and it was published quite a lot. And that, that image starts to become a catalyst for other conversations around what that project did, the ideas in that project, and how those ideas could be transferred into other, um, other contexts. But one of the things that I'm finding increasingly, particularly in our residential practice, is people are coming to us with a Pinterest page and saying, I want a bit of that one, I want a bit of that one, and I want a bit of that one. Can't you just kind of mush them together and just do something like that? Um, and it seems to me that we're, we're starting to shop for architecture in the same way that we shop for shoes or other consumables. 
And I think that's um, reflective of one of the issues we were talking about before, this idea of the commodification of the image. Um, and I, I think it's, it's not that people don't believe that architecture can have a social or political or urban um, influence or be an agent in those, those domains. It's, it's basically, that I think, in the broader community, I don't think a lot of people even consider architecture can operate in those domains. And this is, I think, one of the reflections of the commodification of the image. So I guess the question for me then is how can we use social media and the image to speak to these other domains of architectural's agency, architecture's agency? You say, Ben, this is where I come in again and say Instagram is an incredible tool because I think what's happened, um, I think um, uh, we're visual people. And um, at the end of the day, Instagram has sort of become a, a really... I mean, it's one of the social medias that we talk about, but I think um, it's an incredibly powerful tool. Yes, it may have sped up the world or slowed Amy down, but either way, it's, um, there is a capacity to acknowledge that that's maybe what it's done. But what the incredible thing that it has done is that we start to talk about the role of experience. And I think the, the value, you know, the curation of experience, we're all sort of editing out what we don't want to see and we're um, curating the image to um, define what we've previously seen on the internet and then we've gone experience and we still only want to see what we've seen on the internet. We don't really want to see the other stuff on the way. However, there's this um, incredibly important thing that starts to happen through the idea of collective experience. And um, Instagram has sort of become, by default, this um, community of um, within, you know, it's a, it's a closed community in the sense that um, we all understand architecture. However, it's also broadened um, a network of um, people within the industry, which then spills out beyond that, which I think is an incredibly important tool. And the, I think the fact that we sort of turn up to functions and it's like, oh, hi, 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 hi. Um, oh, yeah, I follow you on Instagram. So there's this thing where you've already met but you haven't met. So there's an incredible thing that happens from an um, industry point of view. But in terms of how we actually see that as a conversation that continues beyond our industry and filtrates into the, the public realm, I think is an incredibly important thing. I agree. I, I think the, the greatest potential of social media is the broadening of the conversation around architecture. So including other people in our conversations and the things that we think are important about the built environment. I think the, the, the risk or the challenge for us is how do we convert that conversation, which seems in, in a lot of ways to be um, associated with the image and the way that things look, how do we convert that into other forums so we can have conversations like this? So I think the empathy and the opportunity to have these discussions is um, incredibly valuable. But Amy and I were also talking earlier in the week about um, Open House as one of the other kind of key forums for this type of experience. And, um, and I think it's, it's probably um, a really good opportunity to sort of talk about some of those stats because when we talk about this idea of experiencing architecture and um, the collective experience that we start to sort of generate through social media, there's something that, um, that is actually occurring um, in terms of wanting to explore architecture. So Instagram, you know, might be a medium where we actually become incredibly jealous of the places that people are visiting, but it becomes a, a way of tagging what you want to go and see at a later date. Whereas um, forums like uh, Open House, the most incredible thing about that is that it's um, a, a condition that's actually opening up the city to the public. And so this idea of the civic, how we actually engage with the civic, um, becomes a very important factor in terms of how Open um, House is run. 
And um, just it's sort of speaking to Emma Telfer, who's the executive director of um, Open House, who's here um, this evening, um, just about the idea of, of how um, the public actually really want to engage with that, which is incredibly um, important for us as an industry, but also how we talk about architecture, how we actually communicate what we do, um, and the fact that that gets um, communicated through experiencing space, which um, is an incredibly important thing, as we know. Um, so some of the, the statistics since 2008, it's, been, um, it's facilitated over 900,000 visits to 934 um, uh, sites across Melbourne. And in July this year, Open House Weekend recorded 85,748 visits, which is extraordinary over a weekend. And then in 2007, this is a stat that I, I had to ring Emma and go, hang on a minute, can't get my head around this. However, it's um, fascinating. So in 2017, the media coverage penetrated, and I can only ex explain this through hands, penetrated um, or generated but penetrated a reach of over 16 million um, and PR value of exceeding 6 million, more than double um, last year's revenue. So that, this will, um, in terms of, um, uh, I, I just think those statistics are quite um, valuable to understand how we um, start to think about this idea of, um, you know, when we talk about penetration, the penetration is through the image, it's through um, media, it's through social media, it's through the internet, so this extra extraordinary network that um, happens electronically, however the value of that experience is what everyone is actually wanting to grab hold of, which is great. So it seems that we're in furious agreement. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now we've got time for a few quick questions. If anyone has some burning questions for the panel, I've got a roaming mic, so I can hand it to you. Who wants to ask a question? <laughs> Anna, you've got a question. <laughs> Do I? Um, well, open houses are really great example because people are engaging with things on a real experience level. Um, but more and more we're governed by this thing in our pockets and its ability to sort of um, uh, augment and virtualise our realities. Um, maybe perhaps the panel could expand on how they think a, an augmented or a virtual reality might um, expand upon their practice if it will at all moving forward in the future. Excellent question, Anna. Who'd like to address that? <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Um, I think the I think virtual reality and augmented reality are quite different, um, and I, I think they they kind of operate quite separately. And I think virtual reality for me is not as interesting as augmented reality, because, partly because it's a it's a simulation and it's divorced from kind of the experience of the city. Whereas augmented reality is super exciting as a um, potentially as an adjunct to the um, type of work that we do in our practices. I think one of the really quest interesting questions around that is the ability to, to produce customised spatial, spatial experiences per user um, or per individual. Um, so you could have this kind of augmented layer of your experience of the city that only you have and you have this ability to personalise it, which I think is kind of really interesting. But I think the counter proposition to that is if 
you're, you have this customised, bespoke experience of the city. What happens to the actual physical aspect of the city? Does it become completely generic and entirely um, prosaic and entirely kind of functional? It's kind of terrifying. And then it raises the questions around equity. So if you can afford this incredible experience of the city, what about people who can't and can't afford the same level of customization? So I, I, think, um, I think those are questions that are kind of completely open and I don't think we're really kind of starting to engage with it, but I think it's, kind of, it's both an, an incredible opportunity and an enormous risk. Um, if I can just add to that, maybe um, we're using the practice, a little application called Round Me, which Fiona here from the office has used on a courts project and, you know, you get your mobile phone, you download this app, you can send it to a client, they put on a headset and plug their mobile phone into it and they look around a room and you'd think that it, sort of AR or VR, gives you a, a better ability to convey your ideas but we find it incredibly dangerous because it's actually a very careful form of lying, right? There is stuff that we leave out of the images there are expectations you have to actually more and more carefully manage the more sophisticated your tools get because you've got this impression that this is what you're getting and if it doesn't meet those expectations you're actually into the same kind of problem where a client can't read a plan that you might have had now or 20 years ago so I, I agree with Ben there's great opportunities but you've got to find other ways to deceive for the image another point and it kind of touches on what we spoke about before but all these things like augmented reality is a little different because I suppose it's a different kind of concept in terms of design but in terms of trying to find a way to virtually demonstrate a design proposal or architecture we're still completely limited by a single sense like it's still a completely sensory experience you know architecture like you know architecture relies on um, a whole variety of senses it's haptic it's you know um, and the visual sense is something that needs to work in collaboration with a range of other things. So by doing that, as you know, immersive as it is, it's always going to be extremely limiting, you know, and giving you one perception of it. And, I, and I, I think there's something, there's a value, and I know Mel sort of talks about that this comes um, beyond post selling the idea to the client. <laughs> but there's, there's something um, incredibly important about how the client understands their project as well. And I think uh, the idea that they understand the project 100% is actually a very dangerous sort of proposition or a dangerous thing to um, expect that a client will understand the project 100%. So I think that we're, we're all adopting, and it's a traditional way of expressing architecture, but I think we've, we all adopt a, a methodology associated with how much do we want this project to be explained at the beginning. And, um, and this lovely sort of process you go through, you, you know, you even get surprised sometimes in terms of how the things feel, but you won't ever tell anyone that. Um, but, you know, there's, there is this thing where you, you, you're taking someone through an experience um, in terms of leading them through a design process. It's not just, you know, from day one they get it. Yeah. And just on that as well, I suppose it's... Uh, are we trying to sell architecture as a... Um, as a product and I think the more detailed sometimes we go into into it and having you know everything that they're going to be seen built available from them from a very early stage you know it's immersive but are we trying to sell them a concept and a concept can rely on a few very very lightweight sketches or you know you pull back the information you might want to give because you're trying to convey a very specific point about what you're wanting it to become as opposed to the end product itself. 
Um, so maybe just a final point on that. I think that at the same time, I think maybe virtual reality does have quite an interesting role um, because UX design is a thing that's sort of emerged in the last five to six years. So every app that you use is always tested through people using it and in, um, engaging with it and seeing all the kind of problems with it. So every app goes through all this rigorous testing. And we don't really have that for architecture. And you know maybe virtual reality does provide that opportunity where you can actually get people to use the building um, before it's actually built and start to see how they interact with it, um, which you couldn't do augmentally because you'd have to have the full scale of it. But if it was a, a purely virtual environment, then they could move through it and interact with things and start to... And then you can get feedback from that process that could inform the design. Anna, did you have a question? Um, I find this debate quite interesting in terms of how it's framed, um, having the physical and the digital in opposition to one another. Um, for example, I consider drawing to be something that's quite a non-physical act, and architects have been doing that since there was architecture. Um, Conversely, you've got technology like 3D printing, which is actually kind of enabling the physicality of architecture. So I was wondering, do the two have to be kind of fighting with one another? Is there a way that they can enable one another? This is what gets me really excited about you know, the future of 3D printing and how we start to think about... Obviously, it's in a very rudimentary stage of at this point in time, but I think in terms of how we start to consider the role of 3D printing in the crafting of buildings um, and actually, you know, the one-to-one through 3D printing is, is going to be an incredibly important future vision of what architecture and the craftsman is actually going to be. So this sort of the idea of, um, you know, the detachment that we've, we're increasingly getting through the process of designing and then procurement is actually... Um, I, I believe, I hope, will be, a, you know, a far more tangible condition. Um, so I'd, I'd completely agree. I think it's a false dichotomy. Um, there, for, for me, um, I pick up a pencil or I pick up a mouse or um, we make physical models. It's kind of... It's, you, you use the most appropriate tool to the task at hand. Um, and I think, I think all of us, in, in many ways, are kind of digital natives. We, we've all used CAD for probably most of our university careers and most of our professional careers in different ways. So I think the, the debate around drawing versus CAD, I think it's kind of done. It was done 10 years ago, and we all kind of use the different tools for different things. Um, yeah, that's my kind of take on it. I'm, about a week ago, I asked Mel to come in for a um, discussion at uh, RMIT about um, digital fabrication, in part because I think a lot of the work that um, Maker are doing is really interesting in the digital fabrication space because it doesn't look like the wavy, curvy, necessarily looks like the lion stuff. It looks like something else, but they are engaging in a really interesting way in digital fabrication. Um, so I think that the kind of the idea that there's an aesthetic associated with digital is kind of somewhat problematic, and I think we can all engage in each of these tools in our own kind of particular way, which I think is kind of exciting. I mean, I, I agree. I think that's sort of what I was trying to say, is that um, maybe it's just about sort of... I don't want to reduce it to 
it's too easy to say it's a digital wacky architecture and that's a crafty architecture and that that's digital and physical but um, I think a really it's an interesting conversation to have but um, I thought we were brought to RMIT to show um, a sort of example of what could be improved by the computer um, and um, yeah but I, I mean that's how we work we work digitally to produce things physically and we're interested in the craft of real materials and the making of bricks and ceramic things. Thanks, Mel. That was a fabulous conversation. Um, the DJs are here, so I feel like I'll wrap it up. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned earlier, it's a three-part series. And so the next week is SONA, which is our student body. Uh, they'll be discussing in the new century, uh, should we... <laughs> Um, should we follow the traditional values of the architecture industry? Um, and lastly, on Friday the 24th, which is the following week, the established architects of the Australian Institute of Architecture um, will consider a critical issue in Australia today. Is affordable housing just for the middle class? Uh, thanks again for joining us. If we could give our panel a warm round of applause, please. And thank you so much. Have a good night.